You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who and Wizards vs. Aliens, so that you don't have to. I'm JR. I'm Dan Starkey. And I'm Phil Ford. Guys, before we get into anything else, did you see Saturday's Doctor Who? Yes, yes, yes it is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, for the listeners, of course, that was Flatline, because uh, obviously yes. they might not realise what episode we were talking about. Dan, did you enjoy it? I yes, I enjoyed it very much. It was a, it was a very uh, nice little episode. Uh, good to see uh, sort of like an episode in Bristol. Well, I trained at drama school, so it's nice, nice to have a bit of representation there. But yeah, it was lovely. Well, it was one of those Doctor Light episodes. Although it was a very elegant way of doing it, with a Doctor in a handbag, and I and I like these who are like shame the gospel with the thinking TARDIS. Yeah, and to, to go with uh, last week's Clara Light episode, and you've just foreshadowed where this conversation is probably going to go in a bit by talking about Bristol okay. drama. Right, but there you go. Phil, you were just before we started recording. You were mentioning something about the effects. Yeah, yeah, the effects were actually um, uh, done by Axis, the same people who uh, do the effects of Wizards vs. Aliens. So obviously, I had all sorts of reasons to watch that, and I did think the effects were amazing. The the yeah. aliens once they once they became three dimensional were absolutely amazing. It was great effects. It was lovely, 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 lovely yeah. stuff. It was great. It was very kind of uh, it, it was very um, sort of like stop motion almost, it sort of like a Jan Swankmeyer film or something. It had a very singular oh, yeah. quality to it. It was very, it was very nice to see. It's not like a generic CGI alien or whatever. It had a very sort of yeah. It was very well realised. I thought. In fact, they were actually talking to me about what they were planning to do in a kind of way that you know without giving stuff away uh, when we were on location. Oh. Uh, and so, <laughs> so he was quite just, oh, that's what you were talking about in that roundabout way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, do you know why it wasn't the usual people then? I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know anything about that. You know, it was, it was only purely because um, I knew that they would. They, obviously, there there are there are people on Wizards. That's the only reason that I that I knew that they were doing. I don't. I couldn't tell you why it was not normal folks. I uh, guess. Uh, I guess there's a possibility. It's because they were running a bit close to the wire and probably needed sort of two lots of effects at the same time. So we usually. Oh. Well, I mean, the the, the, the very nature of, of a Doctor Light episode mm. you know, is because you're actually filming two episodes at the same time, two stories at the same time. Exactly. Uh, um, so I'm guessing you know, the production schedules would have been working in tandem, I guess, all right, right down the line. So I guess that's the same when it comes down to the effects. Um, we never have to do that on Wizards vs. Aliens. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I guess I guess this was the effects light episode as well then, where they're sharing the burden. I don't know. There was quite a lot of effects. Yeah, in there. no, no. I didn't. I didn't mean that it was actually light on effects. I meant it was light on milk doing the effects. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. But um, but yeah, it was a, it was um, it was a good use. I'm 
these these light episodes, Doctor Light episodes, are always tricky ones to find a new way of doing them. I think, and uh, having the Doctor trapped inside the TARDIS was uh, was great. Yeah. Yes, and there's the, there's the shot of the TARDIS being dragged along by the Doctor's hand. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a lovely lovely image. It was, uh, That's it was great. The heart yeah. Yes. Oh, th- th- I. Some of the effects, even the simple ones, like where he passes the sonic screwdriver out to Clara. I'm yes, just the very there. handbag with the, with, the, uh, with the lump hammer. Mm. That, was, that was delightful as well. That's, uh, yeah, I was very just, nice, very nice move. I was sitting there with my jaw sort of hanging slightly open, and I'm just <laughs> glad there was nobody else in the room with me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we go any further, then, before we talk about... Uh, well, before we talk about your contributions, have you both been enjoying Series 8? Because for a lot of people, they think it's a bit of a renaissance. Doctor Who? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I particularly enjoyed Episode 2, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Dan, now, Dan, now, Phil, a gentleman would have said he particularly enjoyed Episode 1. Dan well, knows I enjoy every time yeah. on screen. He knows that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love the pattern of the gang. Whatever prosthetic you might be wearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Whichever rubber face I tend to wear, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was pretty weird the other weekend. I actually spent the weekend with Dad as Dad. I don't yeah, think I've yeah. seen him. <laughs> I know, that must have been very strange. It's quite a departure for me, you know. So like, <laughs> Wearing your own head as a prosthetic. Yes, I know, I know. But in series, eight, series 8 has been great. Yeah. Yeah, for a lot of people, I mean, for a lot of people, classic series fans particularly, They've been saying, oh, I wasn't so sure about the last few years, but they really turned it around this time. And to to me, it just seems like more of the same, but slightly better. So I couldn't be happier, to be honest. Well, yeah, yeah. I, think it is, I think it's more of the same. I suppose the, the classic Doctors, it's because perhaps, I don't know, they've got an older Doctor again. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but the stories have been... Um, I think in many ways darker, but they've been good fun, you know, and that's that's when yeah, yeah. Doctor Who's at its best when it's good fun, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. No. I think it's um, I think it's the variety of difference of tone. Although you know there is a there's positive, a slightly sort of more measured and sort of darker tone to sort of quite a lot of it. I think there's still a huge amount of variation episode on episode, mm. um, and it's just great having that variety. It's a real anthology sort of like show in that respect. That mm. you can have this, like the tone of something like Kill the Moon, which is so, so like distinctive visually, and so like the so, like the robot of Sherwood, which I which I loved as well. You know, completely you know, two very different sort of uh, different polarities, I suppose. But sort of um, yeah, it's part of the same program. I think it's great that it can explore sort of both both ends of the spectrum, really. Yeah, you look no. at Lizard, and you look at uh, Gareth Roberts' episode. Yeah, you yeah, know, the, the whole gamut there. Great. Yes. Oh, they couldn't be further apart. And yet, there's a consistency between them. I think that's actually one thing he's done this year. You're right, there's sort of an anthology nature to Doctor Who, but there's been a running thread throughout this year, which obviously is Danny Pink, and the relationship between Clara and the Doctor and Danny, that just seems to have tied everything together in a way that I don't think the programme's ever really quite done before. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure that it's never quite done that before, but I do think that it's that there's a there's an interest. It's interesting, isn't it, when you when you do this, you have this idea of the of the companion being torn between mm. the adventures in the TARDIS and adventures in the classroom, if you like. Um, I mean, it's it's a similar thing to. Um, 
to of course Amy and Rory. I mean, there's a similarity there, but there's 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 a there's a delightful freshness I think about about this relationship. And, it, and yeah, it's... And I think I think. Uh... Go on, sorry. I, I think it just reminds me of you know, the, the first, the, the, the very first series of the Bottle Show back where Rose comes from a very fully yeah. realised environment. You know, she's very grounded in the fact she has her life in the estate or whatever. But I suppose the difference in between how the stories are told like now is that sort of like with, 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 uh, with sort of Russell things, it was, you could see there weren't so sort of many gaps in between episodes and you could sort of see, you know, mm. the further the, uh, un- 903 years old, you know, sort of the doctor says after a certain couple of years. So we, we, we've been with, been with them all the way and, with 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 the current series, I think the, the the thing the things which happen which we don't see, and the like the, the bits of the relationship which breathe in between episodes is very interesting. It's very interesting how it's explored, and also the slightly more elliptical sort of um, timey wimey sort of um, non-linear ways of, of of telling the story, which are, which are explored more as well. I think it's I think it's yes, it's, it's, it's quite interesting having both of those levels working together. And I've been enjoying the way it's because you're right about series one, but in series one you had the odd episode here and there that sort of functioned outside of that ongoing storyline. But yeah. in this series, you know, Danny Ping, ever since we've met him, apart from Robots of Sherwood, he's been there in every story, informing Amy uh, Clara's decisions, even when he's not been an actual part of the plot. I just think it's really nice the way he's sat down and thought this through so far to the extent that everything in the series is informed by the ongoing storyline. I just want to see where it's going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, tell me you've not seen any scripts or heard any no, no, no. office gossip or anything. No, no, no. I'm oh, good. It's office gossip around Doctor Who. You must be joking. <laughs> <laughs> I should get your theories then, but I won't. No, it's like, it's like Mission Impossible, you know. It's like you know, this tape will self-destruct, this script will self-destruct within 10 seconds or you're reading it. It's, uh... And they do. I still do it. <laughs> Yes, and of course, I mean, when you, when you write an early episode, it's okay. When you when you if you write episode eight, then you kind of see all the scripts that go before. But when you write episode two, like I did, you don't know, you 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 know, you don't see anything. So that's fair. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, then, since you brought it up, Phil, what was was it different writing the episode this time around, being so close to the start of a Doctor, a new Doctor, than it was when you did Waters and Mars, when you had three years of David Tennant to draw from? Oh, it's hugely different, because, I mean, when I, when I wrote it, um, when I started to write it, um, Peter hadn't been cast. Well, he probably had been cast by then, but nobody told yeah. me. <laughs> um, so, you know, all I had to go on the... Uh, the, when I started was the conversation that I had with uh, with Stephen about it when he was saying it was going to it was going to be an older doctor um, and the only steer I had then was we were talking about Tom Baker so there is a version of the, the <laughs> there is a version of that script which has basically has Tom Baker in it or a version <laughs> of Tom Baker um, and then later on um, uh, when they clearly did know who it was going to be, um, Stephen started talking about a mad Billy Connolly, uh, oh. an angry Billy Connolly, that is. Um, so, so there's a version of the script which has basically Billy Connolly doing it. Wow. <laughs> you're having a voice in your head when you're writing these things, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's so much easier when you've actually seen the Doctor. Um, because it's the same when you're writing any show. You know, if you've seen episodes of it in in the past, you know you know how um, how the characters speak. 
Um, so it's very easy. You hear those voices in your head, and it's very easy to do. Well, e- easier to do. But when you write anything uh, for the first time, you don't hear those voices in your head. And and also when you're writing um, a character that somebody else is creating at the same time and independently of you writing that first script, it just gets even more complicated. So, um, you know, but uh, but, no, it, but it was a delight to do. I mean, it was a great, great idea. And as a, as a you know, Stephen... I knew had been talking about doing the, you know, the Doctor gets miniaturised and ends up inside a, a Dalek for a, a fair time. I'd heard talk of this story that that Stephen hadn't yet written. So when they asked me to write it, I was over the moon with it. <laughs> I bet you were. Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, it was it was it was it was it was a massive. Uh, joyride really for me i mean it always is whenever you get to write something like the daleks or the cybermen which of course i did for the um the adventure games uh it's, it's just tremendous you know and that first time that you you're actually sitting there t- and you type out exterminate is um, <laughs> magic it really is magic yeah. now dan you were in peter's first episode yes i'm, I'm guessing because he was you know, because of the announcement and everything, you knew it was going to be Peter Capaldi before you knew that you were going to be in his first episode. Um, yeah, well, I, I watched the, uh, the the announcement on uh, on on BBC One along with everybody mm. else in August, um, which was which was uh, you know very exciting. And then, yeah, I think um, yes, it, no, it, 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 the, the call came through. You know, a couple of couple of months later, and it's like, yeah, we want you for the first episode of the new series, and that was terribly exciting. And also, I'd seen as well. I think they released it by then that Ben Wheatley was directing, who, and I love his oh, stuff. Yes. As well. Yeah. So that was just, it was like a hat trick. It was like, that's really exciting. First episode of the new series, new Doctor and stuff like, you know, Ben Wheatley, you know, sort of a really serious director who I'd love to work with. So, um, no, it was, it was amazingly exciting. And also being there on Peter's very first day, it was amazing sort of, um, experience. We, we, cause Catherine, uh, with this episode, uh, with, with, with Deep Breath, they recorded it not completely chronologically, but so like, quite chronologically, just give Peter a sort of like a, it's like a, a, a good sort of like a, a sense sort of like um, finding his way in. Yeah, finding yeah. his way in. Um, which I because I think with Matt they sort of did the uh, did the Dalek one first and so like let him find his feet first of all. But this was a slightly different process. But on the very first day of filming, Catherine and Eve and I went off to a location in Cardiff and we did the bit um, with the dinosaur yeah. inside of the tents and um, and then went to the studio for the afternoon and they changed the entirety of Studio One into this amazing the amazing sort of Thames side set that you see on screen, and, you know, they've got all this shingle up from, from the river, from, like, the Thames or the tap or whatever, so it smelt like a river as well. But, um, <laughs> but it, it was amazing just, like, knocking on the, knocking on the side of the store, and that's the first, you know, the first time, you know, the Twelfth Doctor poked his head out, you know, I was there sort of doing it, so that's it's an great. amazing feeling, yeah. Wow. And, and it was great seeing Stephen and Brian and all the rest of the production team behind the monitors all sitting there, like, just going, yes! And so, like, just getting <laughs> ridiculously excited themselves as well, so it was, it was lovely, and Peter was extremely, you know, sort of, extremely sort of like a, you know, he was just very open, so like, I'm, I'm quite nervous about this, so just bear with me, and we're all like, no, we're here for you, we're supporting you all the way. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was really interesting. And I think over that, that fortnight, it was interesting seeing with Peter, because I think intellectually, he's sort of like adjusted to sort of, uh, I am the new doctor. So this is going to be quite a big job. But then that, you know, even though you can say that to yourself, the actual emotional reality of suddenly being there, it's kind of like, this is my new job. This is my life. It's all a bit of like a, whoo, okay, step into a, step into a big new adventure. So yeah, I think, I was, yeah. 
It was it was a good title, Deep Breath. I think that's what that's what everyone was taking, really. <laughs> I was just going to say, was he nervous and did it show? Yeah, no, it it, it didn't show necessarily because he's a very seasoned performer. But no, he, he was very open about it, like going, look, bear with me. You know, I do know these lines, but it's my first day as a new Doctor Who, so <laughs> it might come out in a slightly <laughs> odd way. But uh, no, he was, you know, he, he, he was he was he was great, and it was just very exciting seeing all these. Um, these these glimmers coming out of uh, you know that, that first scene where he's not really firing all cylinders and stuff like that. He thinks Clara is is uh, is handles and that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's a bit like the way Tom Baker would say on it. Oh, that's a bit like John Pertwee. And then as it sort of grew, it's like, no, hang on, that's that's the Doctor. It's, he's not doing an impersonation of another Doctor. That's the quite the essence of the character that he sort of actually sort of going out is, there, the energy of it. That is fantastically so funny yeah. when he does that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Were you, both, were you both in the same read-through then? Did you do a joint oh, read-through yes. for the first two yes. episodes? Yes, we, did, even yes. sat, we even sat in the same chair. No, I sat, <laughs> yeah. Not at the same time, I hope. Because <laughs> <No, no. laughs> Dan sat next to Peter when he did, when he did uh, Deep Breath, didn't you, Dan? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes. And then oh. I sat next to Peter when they, when they did uh, Into the Dalek. So, uh, yeah. Dan had decided he'd had enough by that time and he'd gone off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it was also because I wanted to see... I, I've always got that sort of thing. I love watching it on screen and it's kind of like seeing the, reading the... It's hearing the script before is like a massive, massive spoiler. Yeah. So it's kind of, I, I love watching the actual series itself. And also, I think I had a, a time for that as well, so I had to sort of, had to sort of, sort of like uh, go off go off early and not, not go through the second half of the festivities. But, um, but no, that, 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 that was... It was a tremendous was... experience though, wasn't it, Dan? I mean, that, that it was fab, yeah. fantastic. It was really, I... really cool. How, yes, did it, how did it compare with doing it with, well, for you, Matt Smith, Dan, and for you, I suppose, David Tennant, Phil? Was the was the atmosphere in the read through? I mean, obviously the atmosphere in the read through would be a bit special because it would be the first one with Peter Capaldi. Yeah. yeah. But, but was there a different feel altogether with it, or was it just this is business as usual? But here's the new guy. I think that I think that well, no, I think there was a, a different feel there. But I mean, that was for me. That was I would imagine that was largely because it was it was the new Doctor and it was his first. Uh, it was his first read through, and there were obviously loads, but there were always loads of people there at Doctor Who read throughs. I don't, I don't think it was necessarily down to the personality of the actor. Mm. I just think that I mean, obviously that's a part because Peter's a wonderful, wonderful man. When he walked into the into the uh, the read through before we started, he went to everybody in the in the room, and there were a lot of people, uh, <laughs> and introduced himself to them all. So, uh, but I just think it was a very, very exciting read through. Yeah. I have to say as well uh, about Peter Capaldi. I was at the Cardiff premiere of Deep Breath, and when he came out onto the stage afterwards and did a Q and A for about an hour, I was sitting right in front of him. And and this is the kind of thing you don't really get on television, especially in these sort of ten minute Doctor Who extra programs. But just sitting right in front of him, you could see how thoughtful and considered an actor he is. Mm. Because that doesn't obviously always come across in the in the performance, because the performance looks incredibly spontaneous. But you could see that actually, as as an actor, he's a really intelligent and considered person. Yeah. No, it absolutely is, absolutely is. And of course, you've got the whole of the St. David Hall singing happy birthday to somebody in the audience, didn't they? Oh, that's right. Yes, he did. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you were there as well, weren't you, Phil? I was indeed, yes, yes. Oh, sorry, I missed that one. <laughs> yeah, which were the London one, though, Dan? I, no, well, no, I got in. I was 
invited to the Leicester Square one, and then two days before, they sort of phoned me up and sort of said, would you like to go and see this in New York? <laughs> and I sort of went, oh, do you know what? That's, that sounds like I can handle that. That sounds OK. <laughs> so they threw me out to watch it on BBC America, and uh, Mark Gatiss was there as well, who had just come from Japan. Um, and so we were both jet-lagged up to our eyeballs, but it was, it was um, we watched this screening on BBC America, with adverts, which is very odd. But then there was an after show that they did. As a, oh as yeah, a, yeah. Which um called uh yeah this 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 after who sort of type thing where it was lots of uh, chat from the Nerdist Network uh, called Chris Hardwick and uh, various other luminaries including Will Wheaton of Star Trek: The Next Generation fame. Also, come yeah. very 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 quickly because they had lots of words to say before the next commercial break. And so I thought, well, we'll have them in the rest of the series. It's too exciting. And it was uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was it was it was extraordinary just seeing. Seeing this kind of like it's Doctor Who, but suddenly sort of like having this massive sort of stateside sort of launch, it was it was incredible. Um, but yeah, a, a bit of a blur really because I was I was in, in sort of New York for about thirty six hours. So like went to did the program and so like tried to stay awake and then so, <laughs> then so flew back again. But it was um, yeah, so it was like, so it was it was, it was fantastic. But obviously I didn't get a chance to sort of uh, to, to see it in Leicester Square with uh, with all the rest of the gang because it would have been nice to to see the rest of my other partnerosters who uh, who who were there as well. And I think I heard oh. it was. Yeah. Menagerie a trois, as I like yes. to call you. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, Say, from <laughs> you know what we didn't get in Cardiff? We didn't get the introduction. Oh, right, okay. The, uh, the, 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 yes, the, the previous doctors. Yeah, I've not seen that yet. I'm hoping that turns up on the DVD. In fact, it, probably, really I haven't seen it either, actually, sort of properly edited together. I'm, I'm also, I remember doing it, but... Uh, yeah. They they usually tend to sort of like give me these kind of like sort of six solid pages of dialogue, and then I've got kind of uh, wow. the, um, yeah sort of uh, I go back sort of two days to learn it all. So then it's just a kind of uh, you know just concentrating on making sure I yeah they they usually they they usually kind of have to have idiot cards for me just in case. Oh, really? There's big long sort of like bits of bits of text, but uh, yeah. Oh yeah, but you do a really good job of those things. Who <clears throat> kind? Who kind? Dan does a really good job of everything. Well, That's yeah, I was just going to so say. Busy all the time. Well, well uh, and the thing is, you know that character so well inside and out, you can literally make it up as you go. I've seen you in videos where you're, I don't know, talking to kids and stuff like that and just responding to their questions. You did that Q&A thing, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did, yeah. yeah. Are, you uh, are you suggesting that Dan doesn't need a writer? <laughs> well, <laughs> I might be that. suggesting <laughs> that Dan is actually a Sontaran in disguise as a human. Absolutely. Um, using a perception filter to hide my true form. <laughs> no, that's, not, that's that's rather a routine tactic, I think, for uh, Strax to, uh, to deploy. <laughs> oh, yes. We use the yes. enemy's strength against him. Yes. Sontaran judo. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking of acting, uh, Dan... Yeah. Do you remember, can you remember far enough back to the first moment, presumably when you were a kid or uh, yes. when you first thought to yourself, acting, now that's something I'd like to do? Um, it just crept up on me, really. It was just more a case of, it wasn't anything as, as conscious as just, it's just it was just playing and so like just doing um, doing plays at school. Like we had, uh, you know, like, like, a, like a sort of Christmas play that we did at primary school or sort of some David's Day of play, which is what you had in sort of Cardiff. Yeah. Um, or the secondary school when I did school plays, and it was just—I just turned out that I enjoyed doing them and I was quite good at them. But it was—it it never sort of felt like a sort of right now. This is this is my career or whatever. It was just kind of a sort of thing that yeah, it just—it sort of—it sort of worms its way into your head. But it's like this is really good, and it became obvious as well. I think when when I, when I was a sort of teenager, when I was about thirteen, fourteen, that I'm 
you know, every, everyone was like, you know, sort of really worked worked hard to like, you know, have a good school play and good production. But I'm probably taking this more seriously than some of my other classmates are in terms of, you know, how I wanted to sort of uh, how I address myself to it. Yeah. But um, but no, I think yes, it's it's it's, it's just. Uh, did you ever yeah. get? Did you ever have a moment? Because I tell, in fact, I'll tell you a quick analogy before I ask this question. I went to see a yeah. football match ages and ages, years and years and years ago. And I'm not a huge football fan. I've only ever been to about maybe a dozen games in total in my life. But Dennis Wise was playing. And it's not obvious from the sort of edited highlights on television programmes, but actually being there in the stadium watching him. And you could see that Dennis Wise was a natural and head and shoulders above everybody else on that pitch. Now, Dan, when I watch you performing and... A lot of professional actors can't do this. There's a naturalness about your performance that absolutely sells the character, even during moments where you're not particularly the focus of the scene. So what I think I'm saying is, was there a moment when you were maybe 14 or 16 or 18 or whatever, where a drama teacher turned around to you and said, Dan, you're a natural at this, you have to do it? I did did a school play when I was 13, and it was like, the the, the the sort of the junior play, and um, my English teacher because we didn't have we didn't have drama teachers at my school. Um, it was just the English teachers mm-hmm. who used to take it, and I got cast as one of so like the uh, it was this possibly called the called the Son of Man, which was about uh, it was about some Jesus, uh, and I got cast as St Peter that sort of usually would have been cast by uh, played by a sixth former, but he sort of uh, he because he taught me English, and so he uh, he cast in that role that was a bigger one than than I'd done before, and then. And then it was it was really good, and I was quite good in it. And then I got invited to be in like the proper sixth form play next term. So wow. it was me, and I was only a third former, along with all the some sixth formers. And so that was that was kind of like, oh oh, I'm quite good at this then. That's quite nice. So it was it was yeah, and that that that, that it, then it sort of became my thing, I suppose. And uh, but yeah, but it, all of it is it's, it's it's kind of you know looking at film that sort of thing. It just comes through having done it a lot and practicing. And some of it is yeah. sort of like you know is is is, is I, think I have an innate aptitude for it. And other things have just—I've just got a professional training, and I've done lots of things in different sort of situations and stuff. And you try and learn from it as much as you can. So it's, yeah, it's it's a it's, it's a mixture of mixture of things. Um, yeah. And while we're on it, and so that I don't forget, you're currently in rehearsals for a play. Yes, yes, I am. Yeah. So give it a quick, you know, give it a quick bit of hype in case anybody okay, yes, listening to this wants yes. to come and see you. Well, uh, this is this is a, uh, a play. It's um, this this is with a company that I worked with uh, that lasts what five or six years called the Fitzrovia Radio Hour, and it's sort of uh, uh, the show that we've been doing is kind of a uh, it's like a 1930s radio show on stage or a subversion of one. Right. Uh, and this is a bit of a this 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 is a, this, this is a bit of a step upwards. So previously we've been doing it as a kind of more like a fringe show, but this is when the Colchester Mercury Theatre. So we have things like a whole set or whatever, and basically it's. Um, BBC Radio Drama Company in about 1937 they're doing a radio version of Dracula on Halloween uh, and so uh, you have the uh, you have the company the, the radio drama company they have a guest artiste who are joining them just this evening uh, who's a Romanian character actor and it turns out that he might be slightly better suited to the role than uh, anyone was expecting so um, yeah basically you see the story you can hear the story of Dracula that we're sort of like telling over the microphone but then there's another story going on about what's happening with the uh, actors actually in the radio studio it's uh, yeah it's it's quite it's quite a, it's quite a sort of um 
an interesting one to try and explain just just verbally because it's a very it's a you know despite the fact it says it's a radio show it's it's a very visual as well. But it's being directed by a fellow called Calma Crystal, who was the guy who did all the physical comedy in One Man Two Governors at the National Theatre, which has been very successful and that sort of thing. So it's got yeah, it's, it's, it's it should be very funny. It sounds great. Yeah. It sounds like it's got shades, just hints of. Do you remember a film with Willem Dafoe in it called oh, yeah. Shadow of the Vampire? I think there is there is the elements of it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, and that was a fantastic film. So yes, and we've been using all the kind of um, you know as, as a reference point because it's specifically 1937. So like Bela Lugosi, mm. you know, his his Dracula was sort of very current then. So that's that's definitely a reference point. But also wow. you know sort of Max Schreck and all those sorts of things, that very sort of German expressionist type stuff. It's, it's yeah, it's, it, should be, uh, it should be good fun. But it's on from the 30th of October until the 15th of November in uh, the Colchester Mercury Theatre in Colchester. So, uh, yes. Wow, Do right. Go. If you don't get extra bums on seats from this podcast, I should want to know why from the listeners. Well, quite. <laughs> <laughs> now, and Phil... I think I, I, and also, I should say, I, just, I will be giving my Abraham Van Helsing at some point as well, so <laughs> it's a pleasure to hear, to hear his Teutonic accent. <laughs> wow, you've sold me. Yeah, yeah. But Phil, now Phil, yeah. I've got to ask you the same question uh, as concerns writing and when you were a child. Did you have, you know, again, an epiphany or was it, again, something that came on gradually? Um, you know, it's, that's a funny one. Um, I can remember from junior school, I was writing stories in chapters. Um, so I've just always written. I can remember my first story that I wrote with chapters, which was called Exploration Saturn. How sad is that? <laughs> hey. so, so, yeah, the very first thing I can remember writing was science fiction. I mean, when I say I had chapters, I think every chapter was probably about one page long or, or something like that. But, well, yeah, yeah but... I, I, had always, I had always written, and and I, I was brought up in a, in a mining town in the Midlands, and, um, and I, was encouraged, I was encouraged by all of my teachers to write. Um, and but as I say, I was brought up in a mining town in the Midlands, uh, where in those days you weren't very likely to go into television or or, or even write novels or anything. But the the one thing, because writing, as I say, was the only thing I could do. Um, the the one thing that I thought I probably could do was become a journalist. So that's what I did. I went into the newspapers and became a journalist and discovered that that wasn't really about writing. It was more about getting on with people mm. and and having having a natural um, uh, uh, curiosity about people. Um, and 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 really, it was kind of from that. I'd always still written my stuff, my stories, as it was then, and and eventually I I. Had a go at writing a TV script, and and that's how I come to be here now. Well, in fact, you you had some massive success pretty early in your career, and you were well the lead writer on um, one of Jerry Anderson's latter productions, weren't you? Well, the um, I, I lead writer in as much as I wrote pretty much all of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and new Captain Scarlet. That was actually that was actually wasn't that early on in my career because I'd done um, I'd done uh, Taggart and uh, five years on Coronation Street. Oh, five or, years on Coronation you, Street. Yeah, yeah. It's been training, isn't it? Back when it was good, though. Well, I, I wouldn't like to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, 86 episodes in five years. Yes, I have those numbers carved into my heart. But it was good fun. It was good fun. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, I went into into the industry because, you know, I always wanted to write fantasy. Um, and I went into the industry at a time when British television just wasn't making it. Mm. Um, uh, so, so the opportunity... To, to work with Jerry came along. The first thing that I did with him, he was, he was planning a new live action series at the time, a thing called Eternity. Um, and I, there were three pilot episodes commissioned and I wrote two of them in the end. Um, and as I say, unfortunately that never came to be, but even then when we first had those, those conversations, there was talk about him remaking Captain Scarlet. So when that happened, it just coincided oddly with the time when I was fired from Coronation Street. <laughs> so, wow. I went, so I then went, I then went on to uh, to write New Captain Scarlet, and yeah, and actually from New Captain Scarlet led to me having the conversation with Russell, which then led to Sarah Jane, which led to Torchwood, which led to Doctor Who, which leads to uh, to all of this. Yeah, right, I've got to stop you there, Phil. You can't talk about getting fired off Coronation Street. Especially if it's a juicy story, without going into more detail. I, th- I, I think it was all the alien stories I was trying to get into the show. I think they got I shoot all those in, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it does. When you're doing something like that for such a period of time and so many episodes, it does kind of become second nature, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose it does. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a tough gig, to be honest. I mean, um, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And, and, you know, it is, as it was described to me, um, when I, in the early days when I started, it's a, it was a sausage factory, but it's a sausage factory where, where the, the ingredients have to be the best ingredients. It's a very high mm. class sausage factory, if I can put that. But, you know, you are forever turning out more and more stories. Um, but that teaches you an awful lot. It teaches you an awful lot about, Writing well, writing fast, writing good dialogue, coming up with with good news stories, writing to deadline, all kinds of things. And um, it teaches, so, I was just going to say, and it teaches consistency as well, because you need to make sure it makes sense, don't you? Well, it needs to make sure, sure the stories make sense. Mm. It needs to make sure the characters um acting character you know that because uh, there's there's nothing worse than, than when you see characters doing things or saying things and and then the, the, they're completely out of character um and that does happen i think on 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 some shows uh, from time to time um and um you know and it shouldn't um but uh yeah so it's so, a you know the great thing about working on a soap like that is it's a great training training ground for all those kinds of things and i was very lucky i mean i i was Tremendously lucky at the start because my, my first gig was a three part taggart and I went off that onto Coronation Street for five years. So, you know, I was tremendously lucky. That's a great first gig to have. How did it come about? With taggart? Yeah. <laughs> Just simply, um, I got an agent and, and as always happens with, with your agent, they send you to lots and lots of meetings and things and eventually somebody will say, Oh yeah, let's give you, let's, you know, let's try you out. Um, and so I went, I went to a meeting with Scottish television and we kind of got on and I, they went, they asked me to, to come up with an idea for a, for a story and I came up with three from which they then chose one. Um, and, and they were incredibly patient with me, I have to say. It was my first thing that I'd written and to get a three hour gig 
Um, wow. Like that is, is just astonished. Yeah. Um, um, and, uh, Robert Love, who was the, who was the producer then, and Michelle, Co- and, and, uh, Nicole Coffrin, who was, who was the script editor, were, were just tremendous with me. They really were. Um, as indeed was Glenn Chandler, who created Taggart, who, who I, I met during the process of it. And, um, and it was just great. It was, a, it was a lovely experience. And, um, yeah, and, <laughs> I haven't seen it in years, <laughs> but, um, the, the episode, the story that I wrote. But, uh, yeah, it was tremendous. It was really good. Do you get a little feeling in the back of your head? You know, you've sort of not come out of nowhere, but you've not got any television experience yet. And here they are on a programme with, you know, the sort of audience sizes that Taggart had, the popularity. And they've said to you, OK, go ahead, write as one. Do you get something in the back of your head that goes, you know... I can do this. I'm good at this. I tell you what did go through my head every time I went in for a meeting with them, but they're going to fire me. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I went in for a meeting, for a script meeting, I thought, this is the one where they fire me. This is the one where they fire me. And it's, it's, it's um it's a it's a funny feeling when they don't. (laughs) And you kind of think, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, it, it, so it took me a long time to believe in myself. And I think, I think all of us, uh, whatever we do in all of this, we all still have that kind of feeling at the back of our head, back of our necks that, that they're going to find us out. I know I did for years and still yeah, yeah. time to time, you know. Um, but I think that's true of any creative profession, isn't it really? About yeah, the, I, that feeling, how the hell have I got here? And it's like, will I be found out? It's, it's, yeah. uh, I think it's something that's perennial, I think. <laughs> I kind of think unless you come from, I mean, I, I don't know, Dan, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you were like me and you came from quite a normal family. Yeah. Uh, and and so to, so to be involved in all of this is kind of really weird. You think, really, this is me? This is what I do now? You know, and, and it, it is a bit like a dream, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's extraordinary. So I was thinking the other day that's like, you know, some one of my friends commented that's like, so you've got a job now that you would have thought was really cool when you were eight. <laughs> I think that means that means that means that you win in a certain kind of a way. Oh yes, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And to be working on a show that kind of loved as a kid and then yeah. was cancelled. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and so so this is the second show that I've made that 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 was a show that was on telly when I was a kid because I remember watching Captain Scarlet when I was a kid. You, I would never have thought one day I'd write for that. I would never have thought one day I'd write for Doctor Who. Well, you know, I was gonna, I was working my way towards going back to your childhood. I was just gonna say, what were the programs? Damn, we've had loads of Phil for the last five minutes. I'm sick of his voice. <laughs> Dan, I'll go to you. <laughs> I'm just Doesn't kidding, Phil. I was just gonna say, but but what were the programs when you were a kid? And did those programs when you were a kid, the ones that really sort of struck you, did, were did those programs have any influence on your decisions? To go into acting and to go into writing, do you think? Um, I, I, mean, I don't. I don't think it's as conscious as like right. I watch it, and I was sort of seeing interviews with David Tennant when he went right. Decided I love Doctor Who. I'm going to be an actor. It was never anything as conscious as that. I think um, I love Doctor Who. I was very obsessed by it. You know, sort of like from the ages of about three until thirteen when it stopped being no twelve when it was off the screen, and I never stopped liking it. But it was just it was just it just wasn't as part of uh, it wasn't on telly anymore. So I started being interested in in other things too. That was probably yeah. quite healthy, but um, <laughs> I think I think no. Initially, I wanted to be the docs, and so I wanted to be a scientist, and I wanted to invent a time machine in that. And then gradually, you know, 
My scientific science is a secondary school. I wasn't bad at them, but it, they didn't quite sort of like you know light my enthusiasm in the same way that I thought I thought they would do. Um, but sorry, I've completely lost my thread. What was what was I? What was I oh, yes. Yes, no, Doctor, Doctor Who's a massive obsession. I think, um, all think those things which you, you get excited about the future when you're a child, like Tomorrow's World and, and that sort of thing, and, uh, and comedy programs as well, this acting out bits from Blackadder and that sort of thing. And it, I think it's more, I think it's more a thing of, um, also, I, 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 I'm an only child, and so I think, um, I, I just, I, yeah, I spent lots of time just sort of, like, sort of playing, playing by myself, sort of, you know, acting out bits from programs that I liked. That sort of thing, also, like, you know, populating your environment with, like, a whole, like, imaginary sort of landscape and that sort of thing, which is basically what I do now, you know, and if, you know, you're in front of a green screen or something, you've got to imagine there's a dinosaur, that's fine, you know, I was able to do that when I was five years old, I can do that now, and it's about, and it's, it, it, it's that whole sort of thing of, um, I mean, also, I mean, also another thing which I sort of was, was taught to do sort of, um, formally, while I was improvising, and that's all about sort of, you know, you can start off with one sort of tiny detail of a room or something, then build up the whole environment around it just by... Crew in detail, and I think that's true of when you're creating a character or, or whatever. And that all comes from you know watching sort of like sort of programs when you're a kid, or sort of reading books or something, and just making detail about that, and then creating a whole world around it. Or, or, or what the other thing which I did when I was obsessively when I was a kid, I used to draw a lot um, because my my mum's an art teacher, and so I guess one of my first memories was of her drawing. And um, I just used to, used to sit and sort of have my you know, photographs from Doctor Who magazine, and then sort of start that as a jumping-off point, and then just draw all these big sort of environments. So it's a, it's that whole thing of populating, yeah, you know, using your imagination to sort of to, to sort of uh, populate your surroundings. And I think that's that's kind of what I do with acting. You know, you've you've got the, you've got the words on the page, you know, whether they're Strax or Randall Moon or any other character, and they're kind of like the, the the peaks of the icebergs that you see with the character. And then it's your job to actually sort of Populate that mentally and and physically, sort of like so you see what's coming from behind those words and sort of like what what's surrounding those, so sort of to give it some depth and richness and all that sort of thing. And then yeah, and then or you know if you're picking stuff up, then yeah, you kind of know where it's going already because you don't have that brain work that you've made up of already. So yeah, so yeah. that's rather elliptical way no, no, no. talking about it. I yeah. know oh, that was fantastic. <laughs> that's what I love about getting people to talk about this stuff. You actually learn things. Uh, and we yeah. learned there something I'm quite horrified to find out. Actually, you, are you telling me there wasn't an actual real dinosaur down in Cardiff? <laughs> well, well, he's uh, she, if, if if I let you know, then they'd uh, they, I think I'd get swallowed up by the temporal rift and uh, sent to Torchwood. So, uh, Do you yeah, know what? You, know, <laughs> you mentioned that set earlier of the um, the sort of waterfront. I was yes. astonished when I watched on the Doctor Who extra to find that was a set. I was sure it's, that was out of no, location. It was amazing, you know, and just for that one scene, building that whole sort of thing, it was just like, you know, you know, you know introducing a new Doctor, let's do a future episode, pull out all the stops, you've got Ben Wheatley, you know, film director. It, yeah, it was fab. And, uh, yes, the whole, the whole, it's, it's amazing how, it's, 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 especially with the, with the, with the last sort of cup series, just how beautiful it looks on screen. Mm. Just how it looks, and the fact that you can show a, te- a program is essentially made for television. You can show that on a cinema screen, and it stands, you know, it stands up against oh, absolutely. whatever it does, else. Yeah. Um, and it's fab. And it's funny, actually. It's interesting. This is a, this is a little sort of a sort of like a tangent, but it's sort of quite yeah, you know, it's quite annoying one. I was watching sort of a, a couple of episodes recently on a um, on a TV in a hotel, which is quite a new big flat screen TV. And one of the things which new TVs have got, they've all got these picture correction things, which you can't necessarily turn off. And it's always kind of like strange bells and whistles. I meant to actually sort of improve picture quality. 
But what they do is they take modern high-end television and they kind of make it look like 80s video. Really? So it was a really weird thing. So I was watching Listen, which, you know, I, I've watched it again since properly on, on, on a sort of like a, on, on, on a normal television without all this like the, the so-called yeah. sort of like adjustment. Yeah. And it was very strange um, looking at sort of um, looking at looking at Listen and going, I can tell because I've taken away all the motion blur. I can tell that's a sound state because obviously I've stood on some of those sets. Yeah, and yeah. that's really, that's, that's not what the cinematographer was telling you to do. But I think it's, it's a wider point, which is quite interesting, about how in the future... Oh, hello? Hello? Um, something like Doctor Who and a program like that is going to be... Oh, hello, can you hear me? Hello? Hello, hello? you're I back. Something weird happened there. No, you're okay now. Sorry, I was just, I was just pontificating. No, that's all so, right. Chronic hysteresis. Uh, you, know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before I... Ask Phil to go back to his childhood because I'm steering it there deliberately. One more thing and uh, one more question for you, Dan. I was yeah. going to say, how do you find balancing working in the theatre and working on television and having a regular gig on television? Does that enable you to manage that balance more easily? Um, it's it's oh, it's always the job is always about juggling, and it's. Uh, um... Yeah, it's it's not been that bad. I mean, because just because the show which I've been doing, which I plugged earlier, the Fitzrovia show, that's a fun show in that um, it's kind of like a constantly sort of it, 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 hitherto it's been like a constantly touring thing. As we as we're doing the radio show, we've got got some sort of, you know, the old show we had scripts in hand, so in theory you could rehearse it in about sort of two days and then just go straight in front of you know because it's a radio show. Um, yeah. But no, it's 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 always it's always weird trying to combine those two things because, you know, inevitably one job will mean that you can't do another. So it's about negotiating between those sorts of things. But having having a regular gig like like sort of Doctor Who or like Wizards, you know, is is, is brilliant. Because as an actor, lots of the time you, you, you don't necessarily have that, which is which is great because you could be doing anything like around the corner. But equally it's quite nice to have just just just, you know, in order to pay my landlord so I can inform them. It's quite nice knowing that I've got that kind of uh, that kind of like that kind of regular gig sort of coming up and uh, but yeah it's, it's it's a mixture but I, I, I like doing theatre I like doing live performance um, because I don't know it's sort of it feels like it keeps me honest um, <laughs> and with, with with the Fitzrovia show that, that we've done you know sort of like it's, it's, a, it's a proper sort of like you know load at the van sort of like drive to the venue unpack do the show pack it back in the van go and stay in a travel lodge it's that sort of Cold face, are sort of things that keeps you. You know, I'm not going to get some fighty toity about and someone not bring me a coffee in the trailer because when when you've like been going around sort of uh, doing that sort of thing. So yes, it keeps it keeps your feet on the ground, which is good. And another thing I don't think people realise necessarily is that acting in the theatre and acting on television, they're two entirely different things, really. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the mental arithmetic is to some extent the same. You're still slightly doing the same mining sort of characters and sort of trying to give trying to give a. Uh, you know, sort of, the whole thing which we talk about as actors a lot, the sort of truth of the performance or whatever. Yeah. But there's lots of technical things which are very, very different. And especially, you know, when, for me, when I'm doing prosthetics and stuff, there's lots of technical consideration I've got, which, you know, other actors who are, you know, sort of using their own faces or whatever don't necessarily have to think about quite so much. But, you know, as I say, Doctor Who was my very first telly job. And, you know, because I'm inside that Strax mask, that's a Sontaran mask, I, I can't really... Yeah, the hearing is knocked out, and then all the all of your other senses and senses are slightly sort of knocked out as well. So, you know, the first time you got on a television set, there's you know two hundred odd people, and you've got no idea what they all do. But um, as, as, the more I've done it, I sort of like understand what the process is. But it's all those things like um, depending on how you tilt your head. You know, Strax has got very deep set eyes, so his eyes can disappear in terms of how it's lit. 
Mm. Um, so that's a, that's a consideration where you've got to work with the DOT to make sure that doesn't happen. With Randall Moon, he's got a massive nose. So basically, <laughs> in, a, in a very simple way, I've got to make sure his nose is pointing at the camera, otherwise you can't see one of his eyes. So it's, it's all these things where you've got to, to like be on it sort of technically. So, you know, especially with, 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 with those two characters, especially, I've made sure I've done a lot of homework beforehand. So I've got a good idea about the sort of things I want to do with it. So that then at least, well, it's actually, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like with any job. It's like I try and sort of, you know, give the director a definite choice. And either they can throw it out the window and we'll do something different. Or they can go, oh, that's interesting. I'll work with you. Rather than like, turning up and going, I'm a blank slate. Sort of, yeah, uh, yeah. which, uh, yeah, give them something to play with. Yeah. Well, but basically there, our destination was to get to Wizards versus Aliens. But I will go back and ask Phil about the television when he was growing up. Because... One of the one of the things about the Sarah Jane Adventures and Wizards versus Aliens is they are the kind of television programs that the kids of today are going to remember when they're grown ups. So, F Phil, what were the television programs when you were a child that really sat in your head and that you've taken with you into adult life? That's a good question because <laughs> it was so long ago. <laughs> but I mean, but there were there there, there was the television when you were a kid, Phil. Yeah, ha, ha. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was all black and white. Actually, I think we had the first colour television in our street, and I remember watching on that first colour television on our street the very first show that ITV showed was an episode of Thunderbirds. Um, oh. The um, and uh, I can remember getting up because they they showed it really early, something stupid like seven o'clock in the morning. I remember getting up to to watch it. Uh, so it's I'm, I'm, rather than talking about um, the shows that I remembered, um, I just kind of think it's a really interesting question. And bearing in mind what Dan was saying as well, in that watching Doctor Who made him want to you know go and. Yes, do science at school yeah. because I think that's what well, I kids TV and this is something which doesn't get said enough is really important mm -hmm. um, because those shows can actually help shape people and it's not just simply like shaping Dan in as much that he wanted to you know uh, have a go at science do science at school and then discovered acting or that it made me want to write which I think it kind of did because I can remember writing Doctor Who stories I remember writing yeah. Star Trek stories I remember yeah. uh, drawing comic scripts and scripts and things like that as well so, so they obviously gave me an interest in telling a story but um, I remember and this is a story I've told so many times but it's a good story so I'm going to tell it again <laughs> uh, the very first time that I met Jerry was on his 70th birthday and it was a me meeting in his, uh, his office at Pinewood and there's a knock on the door and there's a guy that comes in with a big bottle of champagne and he says Jerry we haven't met before, you don't know me, but I heard it was your 70th birthday, and I just wanted to bring you this, because it was your shows that made me want to come into the film industry. Um, and I've known so many people that were inspired to go into the film industry, to go into TV, by Jerry's shows, because you know people who just got turned on by all the little uh, miniatures and stuff, and all the all the, all the miniature work that went into making those shows and the filming of them and all that kind of thing. But I've also come across people who became scientists, who worked for NASA, who became pilots, all those kinds of things on the back of watching Jerry's shows. And equally, you know, so I'm I'm very strongly of the belief that what 
we do in in kids TV can inspire kids for their whole lives. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that and that might be just simply because it makes them want to be storytellers. It might it might just simply be that it makes them want to be actors, or it makes them want to be cinematographers, or it makes them want to direct, or it makes them want to write. Um, but I just think it's really important, and that's why quality children's television is yes. so important. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's me off my soapbox now. <laughs> oh, that's on <laughs> the soapbox. That's the question about what TV shows I can remember. <laughs> oh yeah, but don't worry, that's very important stuff. And oh, well, I think it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because the the television, well, you know, without naming anything necessarily, but the television that we watch as children has a really big impact on the adults that we become. Regardless of whether we can see that it has done, it has done. It must do. The television that you watch when you're a child is almost as much of an influence on you as your teachers and your parents. I think it is. I think it is. And I think it should be. I mean, I think that, I mean, stories... You know, even even around in those long distant days when you just used to sit around the campfire and there'd be wolves out in the woods around you. Stories the kids were told then were, were told because they gave them some kind of route map for life. Mm. There's a, there was a quote that I came across a while ago um, about the nature of fairy tales. I can't remember who said it. I think it's actually been... Uh, been adopted by other people since, but it was a thing that um, I'm trying to remember it now that, that, that fairy tales aren't there to teach children that monsters exist. Children already know that monsters exist. Stories are there to teach children that monsters can be beaten. Yeah. Um, um, that's slightly paraphrased, but but that's yeah. the sense. And, and I kind of think that that's that's the import again. That's the importance of what we do. Um, Stories can inspire kids, but also, you know, they're there to give them, you know, without trying to sound too grand about it, to to, to give them a positive feel for for the for, for life ahead of them. Absolutely, absolutely right. right. Yeah, yeah. Dan and Dan, when you when you're in Doctor Who, when you're in Wizards versus Aliens, yeah, is there a sense when you're doing it, when you're actually there doing it, do you have kind of a nervous twitch inside you saying, I'm in Doctor <laughs> Who, I'm in Wizards versus Aliens. People yeah. are watching this, people are learning from this, people are going to take this with them into their adulthoods. Do you feel that? Yes, yeah, certainly. Though occasionally there, there, there's a the kick of excitement. I think, I think it, it's the weird thing. I was thinking the other day that so like, when I went to the, sort of the, the, the Doctor Who audition, you know, whenever it was, sort of seven, eight years ago now, if I'd thought about how much of my subsequent career would have been based around, you know, that quarter of an hour meeting. I wouldn't have been able to do anything. Yeah. And I think that's, that's quite a lot of the time you just got to sort of, you know, just, just, just breathe and sort of like, you know, just use your instincts and sort of like get on with it and stuff. But and of course there's, there's moments when sort of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, when, uh, yeah, the whole sort of thing, I, I, I mean, the news is a doctor, you have that sort of like absolute sort of uh, joy and excitement about it or, or the first uh, said that I did in the sometimes classroom. I was running around a warehouse lasering down unit soldiers, you know, which is absolutely kind of... And, just, and, it, and it occurred to me, I'm getting paid to do this. This is astonishing. <laughs> this is actually gainful employment. So, it's, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely joyous. But, uh, but yeah, and, and with Wizards as well, there's a whole thing of creating a whole sort of new mythology and so, like, you know, populate, again, pop, Populating, populating this, this, this environment and this whole sort of 
hill that we that we start to start to explore a lot more in in in, in the third series, which are, which will be coming out soon. Um, but uh, no, it's 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 great, and it's sort of you. Especially, especially with Wizards, because I mean, obviously, I know so much about Doctor Who's from sort of uh, absorbing huge swathes of it when I was a kid. With Wizards, there's there's kind of um, there's lots of little sort of hints and allusions to all this whole sort of world that uh, that we don't yet know about. And so there's something quite exciting about that, the fact that the fact that we are getting a chance to explore it, because you know, as, as, as an actor and that sort of thing, I know that Phil's probably got a whole architecture of it in his in his head, and I sort of like uh, Derek, the, the script editor, has always got lots of ideas as well. But it's it's that whole sort of thing. It's it's an invitation to actually sort of uh, to, to to explore and create a whole a whole new world. So yeah, that's that's always, that's always very exciting. I think we just better correct that one there, Dan. Dan, uh, yes, Derek was our script editor. But yes, <laughs> of course he is, and he's a producer. I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's not listening Sorry, to this. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Dan, fine producer as well. He is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for people listening to this podcast who've not seen it and who might not necessarily know what it is, then do you two guys want to talk us through the concepts behind Wizards versus Aliens? Because I've got to say, when I first found out about it, it just obviously there are certain particular influences that are around at the moment that kind of maybe had a bit of an influence over it. But the actual conceit behind the behind the series is one of those where I sat down and thought, oh. Why has nobody ever done that before? Because well, it just... That... Go on, I'm sorry. No, 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 I was going to say, well, that was kind of <laughs> the genesis of it anyway. You know, this is, I think fairly well known now that uh, Russell and I sat down to talk about um, uh, what we might be able to do because um, we were... Uh, we'd been making the Sarah Jane Adventures, and 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 Liz was ill. Uh, Elizabeth Slayton, who was playing Sarah Jane, was mm. uh, was ill, um, and um, we kind of knew because of her illness that we wouldn't be filming um, a series the next year. But we fully intended, expected to make one the following year when she when she got better. Unfortunately, as we all know, she didn't. Um, but Russell and I um, had uh, a dinner, and we kicked some ideas around. And um, the way that it went was that Russell said that um, that he knew that CBBC was was quite keen on the idea of doing um, something with magic, but we didn't want to do something which was just Harry Potter. Mm. And, and I just simply said, "Well, what about Wizards versus Aliens?" And that was it, really. I mean, Russell just said, that's it. And I'm thinking, is it? You know, and that's what we'll call it. <laughs> and, and absolutely, it was, it was a genius idea because, you know, you kind of say that title and you get it. But it's, uh, but it's about, um, I mean, and another, the other thing was as well that, you know, in the Doctor Who world, magic doesn't exist. Uh, everything, whenever anything that's kind of like magic crops up in the Doctor Who would, ultimately it's explained by a form uh, of science. Um, um, and I, I, in the Shakespeare Code, when you have the, the, the three witches there, you know, they are actually aliens. Um, yeah. So there's always, there's always a kind of scientific, in inverted commas, explanation for magic that happens in Doctor Who world. And we, so we kind of go, well, what if you know what, we what kind of wanted to do something where magic was really magic? And so, um, so Wizards vs. Salians was born. And it just seemed to be, yeah, why hasn't it ever done before? Why hadn't anybody ever done it before? You know, kind of collided, 
um, the supernatural with the extraterrestrial, if you like. Um, uh, to, to some reason, you then kind of have to find that bridge between the two, which is where Russell then had the idea that the aliens that come to Earth feed on magic, and that's why they've come to, and that's why they've come to Earth. So the, the premise, for those who don't know, is that um, we have these aliens called the Necros who come to Earth, which is the last planet in the universe that's left with magic, uh, because basically they've gone flying through the universe and every other planet which has had magic they have drained. And so Earth is the last place left with it. Um, and uh, uh, they encounter um, a 16-year-old boy called Tom Clark, who is a wizard. Nobody knows, nobody at his school knows that he's a wizard. He's just a regular kid, as far as every, everybody else is uh, concerned, apart from the fact that he may occasionally score the odd goal in, in a football match by kicking his fingers and casting a spell. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so, so Tom is a secret wizard. He lives at home with his uh, dad, who isn't a wizard, and his grandmother, who is a wizard. Well, um, she's not just a wizard, uh, she's also a net badland. Really and she's also a net badland, yes. Um, and, and his dad, Michael, is Michael Higgs. Um, and um, Tom's mom, who was a wizard, died under mysterious circumstances, which we just find out about those later on. Um, but um, uh, Tom's Tom forges a friendship with uh with this kid called Benny who is a is 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 a is a science geek for want of a better explanation and together they join forces and take on the Necros. And what and... it really does I oh, just sorry, just to interject maybe, what it really does is it boils down the sort of the magic behind series like Doctor Who, where yes, you do get a rational explanation, but yes, there still is a kind of magic in there as well. This kind of distills that and sort of not necessarily simplifies it because it complicates it in other ways, but it makes it into something that it's really easy to see and to get into. Yeah, I mean, when, when you're writing these things, you, you have to write... I mean, that's, this is why writing... Again, to slightly get on my soapbox, <laughs> fantasy for kids is really hard. It's really difficult because you have to tell um, you have to tell stories in such a way that young kids. I mean, our, our show is at the, at the bottom end of the scale for six year olds up to officially, I think it's six to twelve. But obviously, we have adults watching and all kinds of adults watching it, and that's sense that. I would like to think the sophistication of the storytelling and the sophistication, the sophistication of the acting and the whole production. Um, but yes, yeah, so nevertheless, you have to be able to tell a story which a six-year-old can get. But nevertheless, you have to tell it in such a way that you're not talking down to those six-year-olds and to make it sufficiently sophisticated that kids and indeed adults will get something from it. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. But um, the other thing I was going to say was, of course, um, Tom's grandmother, Ursula, has a magical chamber, which is <laughs> through uh, by by uh, rapping on a door and saying three words, and the downstairs loo turns into the this into the passageway through to this magical chamber, and the magical chamber um, is looked after by Randall Moon, a hobgoblin. Randall Moon will be a hobgoblin. Hob hob hob. He'll have been here for five years in the service of the magical line of Crow all the time. He will be the most hot person in the series. <laughs> I don't believe anyone who tells you anyway, anyway. <laughs> You've got to tell me, was there ever anybody in the running for that other than Dan? Because he's just perfect. 
He is, he is perfect. I mean, we, we, we did do, we did do a, um, uh, an audition for it. Dan, Dan, I think came in for an audition, didn't you? Dan? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Did. So, but other people he, waiting to go he, in, I remember, so yeah. He got the gig, so there was never any real competition. <laughs> no, I shouldn't, I can't, it's one of those parts where you, as soon as you see him on screen, you just cannot imagine anybody else doing it. No, I could never have imagined anybody but Dan doing it, really. You know, and, and I, I, I absolutely love, I obviously I love writing for all of them, all of our characters, but, but, but Randall Moon for me is, is something special. He's something special. And his dialogue is so bloody difficult to write as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's very difficult to say as well, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful part though. He's one of those characters that you probably think, if you were to think about it intellectually, you probably would think, oh, the story could really do without that character. But once you sit down and put the series together, some of those characters who seem incidental are pretty fundamental to the texture of the programme, aren't they? Oh, yeah, and yeah. I think I think, I think sort of uh, Moon, he's been, he's kind of become like the emotional linchpin of quite a lot of episodes as well. You know, so even though, you know, the plot doesn't revolve around him, then, you know, if Randall Moon's like sort of says... Mm, something is happening in the sky and I'm hiding under the table, then you know that like, something bad is around the corner. So <laughs> It's happening under, ha- happening under his feet. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, but no, I mean, I mean, it's interesting because, because Moon was kind of, is a, is a very much a fun character. But there's, um, there's a scene which I think was when I realised for the first time that Dan was just a genius. Um, was when in, in the, in the, in the last day, which is the final story in season one, um, when Tom is being, he thinks haunted by, by the ghost of his mother. Uh, yeah. and, and there's just a beautiful scene between him and Randall Moon where we see him, I think it's the first time we see that more sympathetic and deeper side to Randall Moon, isn't it, Dan? No, definitely. And it's, it's always been this like a, he's like a little sort of guard dog. He's quite feral in his way. Yeah. But then you actually sort of see, well, it's basically because he's been there for 500 years. So we've seen generations of this family come and go. And then you do get this glimmer of sort of like, you know, I've seen, you know, all these people I've grown up with die. And it's, 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 it's that kind of, and you know, and then this is, you know, the, the, these are serious things which you know, I have, you know, that sort of, it's not that sort of like, you know, laughter through the tears type thing, but you do see that there is, there is some emotional heft to it. Mm. He's not, he's not human. He's, his brain doesn't work in a human way, but he has got a sort of a link to the past and so like to other things which Tom is only just starting to understand. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a lovely, it's, it's, it's very nice that it has those depths to it as well. And we can and we can talk about and we can talk about things like sort of grief in a sort in a way that sort of is very accessible for sort of very young children as well. But I think has 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 an emotional truth to it as well. So hopefully, you know, they they will actually sort of be able to have sort of discussions and you know, you know experience those kind of when they come to experience those emotions in their real lives and perhaps they've they've had a chance to sort of think about them before and kind of you know. Is that, that's yeah. Often that's the best way to get through to children is through a character who is apart from their ordinary life, so yeah. that they can understand things like that from a sort of from a tangent, yes. so that they understand those things before they need to experience those things. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the prerogatives of art, whatever. It's of exposed, you know, sort of hypotheticals and situations, you know, and, and emotions that you know we don't necessarily understand yet, but sort of. Yes, it's not. It's, it's not. The, it's not necessarily the rational side of the brain that sort of uh, that deals with these things best. Sort of quite a lot of the time, it's, it's, the, it's the stories that we tell each other and make that, that we use to make sense of them. So, yeah. 
Sorry, going on a tangent again. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. <laughs> but guys, the, we as we record this, we're currently in the middle of CBBC repeating Wizards vs. Aliens from the start. So it must be just about to come back for Series 3. Do you know the date? Uh, yes, we um, we have the, uh, the premiere at the B- BFI on the 25th. And of October. Yes, of October, yes, sorry, October. And then on Monday, the 27th of October, we launch on CBDC with an hour-long special. Um, so, uh, which I think I've seen is 5.30. Um, I'm not okay. sure if 5.30 is right. That was the time that I'd see, and I would have thought it was five, but, so, but it's definitely that day. It's definitely that day. And we have an hour-long special, um, which is the, the secret of Room 12. Um, which um, is a bit of a departure for Wizards versus Aliens in some ways, um, but then this 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 whole the whole series really is um, is uh, something of a reinvention of the of the series. Um, we've never the show has never stood still, and and it continues to jog along and change itself. Um, we have some surprises in store. Uh, and um yeah, and it's it's gonna be um it's gonna be a real roller coaster, I think, this season. Yeah. Wow. But we have to recommend then that if people haven't been catching it on C B B C and haven't seen it, they seek it out on the iPlayer. Yeah, yeah on, on the iPlayer I think um I think it's still available on iTunes as well. Um, all two series. Um because yeah, I mean I mean I think you can pick up um from uh from the room the secret of room 12 season 3 pretty much what's going on but because this series um uh, explores other other areas that we've not explored before um and does touch on events in very much touches on events in uh, in series 2 um it's uh, a richer experience if you've seen the previous yeah series. yeah yeah, but, uh, but, um, and there are some big ex- there are some big surprises in there, even for Randall Moon. Oh, Absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah, yes. yeah, um, yeah, and it's kind of that what Dan was saying about um, about the history of the show in terms of the mythology. Um, I think kind of that mythology really comes home to roost in series three. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's great. I mean, I. I've loved this series. I mean, the whole show I've, I've loved doing. Um, but series three is something quite special to me. Apart from anything else, Russell went off to do cu- Cucumber, so I was left in charge. I thought... <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you what else is also nice, is when yeah. something's established enough that you're no longer establishing it and you can start playing with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think... There are stories that we tell this year that I've always wanted to tell. Um, and this year was the year we were able to do it because the, um, the format of the show is sufficiently established, um, that we're able to, um, subvert it a little. Um, and we bring in, uh, some new characters this year. Um, we bring in some new situations. Um, there are a few shocks in store. Um, there will be a lot of laughs. Uh, there'll be some pretty scary moments, I think it's fair to say. Yes. And there will be a lot of tears shed. Oh dear. <laughs> 
Well, Phil, I think you've done a magnificent job of selling it. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on, even though the conversation's been rather rambling and all over the place. That's just how I like it. (laughs) Conversations. Yeah. Uh, So, Wizards vs. Aliens, CBBC, go check it out, listeners. Phil, thank you. Dan, thank you. Thank you. And until next week, when I'll be going into flatline in much greater depth, uh, probably three-dimensional depth, I'm hoping, with uh, regular podcasters. Until then, I've been JR. I've been Dan Starkey. And I've been Phil Ford. And we will speak again soon. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye.